a word in the Pali language that's called sapurisa, sapurisa. And this word means the ideal model that the Buddha held up to the lay community, those of us who practice, who are here. And Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this word, sapurisa, as the superior person. So this superior person doesn't have to do with our education or our ethnic background or uh, where we are in society, but it has to do with virtuous qualities of the mind and heart, the ability for us to train in the practice in this way. And in particular, the Buddha said that this person is the living embodiment of four sterling qualities, four sterling qualities, which she or he exemplifies in oneself and also encourages others to develop. So these four qualities are faith, moral virtue, generosity, and wisdom. So I'd like to read from the numerical discourses of the Buddha from which this piece came from. And this is the Buddha speaking to the bhikkhus. When, O monks, a superior person is born into a family, this person arises for the good, welfare, and happiness of many people. It is for the good, welfare, and happiness of his parents, of his wife and children, of his workers, of his friends and colleagues, of his ancestors, of the king, of the devas, or celestial beings, of ascetics, and of brahmins. Just as a great rain cloud bringing all the crops to growth arises for the good, welfare, and happiness of many people, so it is when a superior person is born into a family. So tonight I'd like to speak about the first of these four sterling qualities, which is faith. And on other evenings I'll cover the others that I mentioned, moral virtue, generosity, and wisdom. In the Buddhist teaching, in the Pali language, which was the language um, the Buddhist teaching was handed down in, the word for faith is sada. And I particularly like the way that I've heard Sharon translate this word, sada. It means placing your heart upon, placing your heart upon. It also can mean conviction or confidence. In this term, placing one's heart upon, for me, it always means to receive the experience with my heart, and not just with my head, not just in my intellect, not primarily thinking my way, through it, but really seeing if I can trust my way through what's happening moment to moment. When this happens, trusting my way through it moment to moment, it gives rise to an inner certainty, an inner conviction based on experiential knowledge. So this is um, kind of a verified faith based on one's own verification through experience, a deep trust that no matter what happens in practice, it's possible to experience it, basically. And not only to experience it, but through that experience to see deeply into the nature of reality. And in seeing deeply into the nature of reality, the possibility for freedom lies and is awakened and is realized. So here in the Buddhist teaching, faith is not based on blind acceptance or blind belief of any kind of dogma, but in the choice to investigate. So Manindra 
one of our teachers, our beloved teachers, used to always say in Pali, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. When I would express doubt or wrinkle my nose at something he said about devas, uh, celestial beings, or the possibility for complete freedom in this lifetime, he would always say, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't believe what I say or anybody else says, but see for yourself that this is possible. So basically, the Buddha said that there is a way, a path to the end of suffering, and pointed to that way very, very clearly and showed the way step by step. A lot of our faith has to do with this step-by-step faith not by some kind of blind faith in the big dharma with a capital D, but in the dharma of this moment, in the possibility and the choice to be in this moment with as pure and clear a heart and mind as possible. Even before I heard that early on in my life, that the Buddha said that there is a path to the end of suffering, I strongly and silently would say to myself, there must be a path. There must be something else. It can't be just this. There has to be something beyond what my eyes have seen, what my ears have heard, what the mind has taken up and sunk into up to now. There must be something else. At that time when that... um, kind of silent and strong saying would come to me. It was a time when I was living in the Philippines when I had gone back to my birth country. And I had been raised in a poor family, uh, been born in the Philippines, immigrated to the uh, U.S. with my mother, a Filipina. And um, we were a poor family, and I then I married into a very wealthy and powerful political family in the Philippines. So all of a sudden, from uh, poverty to wealth was my life, like that, just like that. And so in that life in Manila, in this family, I was surrounded by poverty and homelessness and um, uh, a lot of things that made my heart break. And this was the beginning of the very deep opening to uh, a kind of a universal suffering for me. So this extreme poverty and helplessness that surrounded me stood out so clearly, kind of against the life that I was living with somewhat of an endless bank account and this and that, that... uh, was a little strange to me still, but I was able to see both sides and somehow still live in in both worlds. It pushed me to understand life more deeply. It pushed me to that place. And I only tell this little story because you have similar stories. You all have parallel ways that life has pushed you to come to some kind of statement There must be another way. It can't be just this. So for me, it was not just to stagnate in that cushy world that I lived in, but to really take a step beyond and to understand something that maybe I hadn't opened to before. So it wasn't just opening uh, to suffering for me, but having some faith to start out with that there must be an end to suffering. It is said in various Buddhist commentaries that the cause for faith to arise is suffering. And so I see in my own experience that that has been true. There was, um, there was suffering to be poor. There was suffering to be rich. There was suffering to see those who were helpless, and I could feel my own helplessness. Um, 
So it is said that this faith that arises because of suffering is a kind of faith that seeks to clarify our spiritual objective. So it's a turning point in our lives when this happens. And it happens in different ways at, in, at different times, um, and we experience it sometimes strongly, sometimes in very refined ways. I find that faith was like a compass for me. Maybe I didn't feel like I really had it all then to understand or to know or to help me then, but somehow faith was, it, it was like it pointed the way. And it was like a very strong compass. And it said, this way that you have been going hasn't been helping. This is a possible way to go. And I was willing to give it a try. So it points us like a compass to the wisest direction to become ourselves in the truest sense, to become superior human beings, true human beings. So I want to acknowledge that I know for each of you, um, suffering is experienced in different ways. And each way is unique and special and no one suffering is more special than another's. It's various ways that we experience it. And because of this, a deepening understanding can come. There's no way around it. We just have to go through it. We each go through cycles, cycles very unique to our spiritual journey. Sometimes it's some big opening, Sometimes it's being in the darkness. Sometimes it's handling, knowing how to handle the light or the beauty of the, of the uh, path without hanging on, to know the darkness without pushing it away. Sometimes we reach a plateau where we're just plateauing out for a while and we need to have a lot of patience. Um, Sometimes spiritual understandings come that we need to understand also not to be attached to, not to develop a spiritual sense of self around those experiences. And so faith along every part of the path. And it's not this big leap of faith that we usually think about when we uh, hear the word faith. It's not that at all. It's the step-by-step faith that's so important, the ability to take just one half breath, just one lifting, moving, placing of the foot, and be willing to to go through that moment by moment. It's the faith to venture beyond um, where we've been, those habitual places and tendencies which form deep grooves of thinking, of uh, deep patterns of, of verbalizing, deep patterns of acting out. One yogi um, a long time ago said, it's the cow path of my mind that I'm in. Somebody a few years ago asked me at this time, did you say cow pat or cow path? Because there's a lot of dung around here, you know, during (laughs) fertilizer around here. Well, it could be both (laughs) at the same time, depending on how you look at it. Every bit of it is important to wake us up to where we've been sleeping, to where we've been ignorant, where we've been ignoring, where we've been not seeing clearly, where we've been not honest enough to accept about ourselves. It's really humbling to go through this path and humbling in in a good way for each of us. Sometimes I've experienced faith as a deep inner calling, not just in myself, but in others. It's it's the first kind of uh, siren, even if it's not so loud, that calls out to us to 
venture beyond what is known, what is already known, to a place where we don't know, which can be really uncomfortable. And we tend to stay where it's comfortable because um, that's how we are as human beings. We don't have, especially in our society as Westerners, we don't have the, the choices to be able to venture out into what's uncomfortable. We're so surrounded by comfort and the accessibility towards it. I was um, inspired, of course, by the Buddha's life, how he was surrounded by comfort and luxury, and yet he ventured beyond. So I'd like to read to you something um, from the Buddha's discourses to his monks as he was speaking to his monks one day. He said, Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. My turban was of silk from Varanasi, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them and I did not once come down from the palace during those times. But there was a time, because of the Buddha's deep inner calling, that he decided one day to venture outside of the walls of comfort and luxury and to go to places where his father and mother forbade him to go because they had learned from some great seer at the time of his birth that if he... Uh, he opened to old age, sickness, and death, that he would not become the ruler of this land and eventually greater lands of the earth, but he would become an ascetic. And so his father and mother protected him from this. But one day he ventured beyond the walls. And there's a beautiful story to that, but I'll just give attention to what pertains specifically to this uh, talk. When he ventured beyond the walls of comfort and luxury, he faced in a powerful way the forces of ignorance, the forces of suffering. And that continued to open in him the pathways of wisdom that began to be realized He began to understand a path to the end of suffering, a path to a way of freedom, a path to a way of peace and happiness that doesn't depend on anything in this conditioned world. And so he continued on that path. And even though it was very, very difficult, it took a great amount of faith for him to do that. Faith is one of the first of the beautiful qualities of the heart and mind. It takes this first beautiful quality to open to all of the others. It was that deep inner calling to venture beyond that was part of his faith. It's something that each of us has to venture beyond the walls of the comforts of our own home of our families, of what's familiar to us, to be here in this way, in this renunciate way, and to experience and open to what we are opening to, bit by bit, moment by moment, day by day. And for each of us, of course, it's not easy. Even for me, you know, I miss my cat, and 
I miss my garden, and I think of all those things at home. Another human being whose faith deeply inspired me is St. Francis of Assisi. I was raised in a a Christian Catholic family, so of course he inspired me too. I was in Italy last year doing some teaching, and so before I went and during the time, I uh, learned more about St. Francis. And I was struck by one similarity that St. Francis had to the life of the Buddha, in that St. Francis came from an upper-class family also. He wasn't a prince like that, but a very um, high part of society of that time. He lived in a walled hill town, a beautiful walled hill town. And he was surrounded by the strong influence of his family, of his family's money, of his place in society, of material, the material life, and also of the religious structure during that time. But one thing that was true for him was that he was unshakably in touch with that deep inner calling. He was in touch with his aspiration to know what he called, what many of us may uh, still call God, for just don't know what word to put to it sometimes, the divine. His aspiration to know the divine, to know goodness, to know God, to know Buddha nature, whatever we call it. Um, To know this in a way that's outside of any walls, outside of the walls of our family, our church, Um, whatever, but to know this place directly in our own human hearts. And that's what always inspired me about St. Francis. I didn't, though I didn't know very much about him as much as I know now, um, and that isn't even a lot, but I knew that it was a steep inner calling in the past. And that's what kind of paralleled my own heart, this very deep inner calling to know what I named God in the past, to know that experience in my heart, not in a church. But I didn't know the exact way. And so it was St. Francis also didn't want any intervention, but wanted the direct knowledge of that. One of the things um, that I saw, you know, he, he took refuge outside of the walled city of Assisi. And um, he went to a small little church there outside of the walls. <clears throat> and um, he made contact with other churches around there. And one of the places where he would go, one of the other churches, and I forget the the exact names of these places, Um, he did some meditation there. And one time he was very tempted to stop his meditation and to uh, go back to what he was doing and to uh, just give up his, his seat, give up his place of his inner calling, his aspiration. And he so did not want to listen to that voice that he went outside, and the story goes that he jumped into a big um, bush of, of roses that had a lot of thorns to them. And he just made himself, you know, as this kind of ascetic, he made himself forget about his thoughts of leaving his aspiration by kind of rolling himself in these thorns. And so I, I thought, well... Um, I don't think I would do that, or I I wouldn't encourage you to do that either. Uh, But one thing about that was um, that really struck me was after he he jumped into that uh, those bushes of thorns, rose bushes, the thorns never grew again. (laughs) It's said that until this day, and I saw the those bushes, there are no thorns on that uh, 
in that crop of bushes. So it was like a miracle that happened. It was his deep faith that, you know, was kind of uh, felt by all around and transformed even the thorns on those bushes. All along the way, it takes faith in our ability to stay on the path, no matter what we're tempted by. And again, I can't emphasize enough, it's not this deep leap of faith that you have to believe the, the Buddha's teaching. It's this moment-to-moment faith that we can stay on the path, that we can stay in this step, we can stay in our, on our sitting cushion, in this breath in that experience of aversion or rage, in that experience of joy, and not get caught. So my own ability, of course, was tested many, many times. More than anything for me, it seems that I have faith in the Dharma more than I have faith in my own ability. And when we examine this for ourselves, usually that's what it comes down to faith in our own ability to actually take that next moment of experience and open to it. For a long time in my practice, I was, as that Native American Indian beautiful saying says, gazing at the moon, I lose the pearl in my own hands. So just looking out there for some intervention, for some help, for some kind of way that I could be breathed upon or touched with some kind of feather, then and I would be free. But that isn't the way it happens. All of the great wise ones, women and men of all different walks of life, have been freed by opening to whatever arises moment to moment, not to what we expect or hope to happen, but what's actually there in our experience. So I realized early on that this practice is all about coming into the present moment within this body, within this mind, as Sally spoke about the other evening. Coming into this present moment with this experience of the body this experience of the mind, all of the four foundations of mindfulness that have been spoken about during this retreat so far. And so this idea of just this moment really has meant a lot to me. Just this moment with faith, nothing more than that. Just this moment. When I take refuge in the Dharma, it's... 99% of the time taking refuge in this moment, in my ability to open to this moment, not in anything more into that, more than that, simply coming to that, placing my heart upon this moment, this present moment. By doing that, life changes incredibly. Because the perception of life is seen in a different way, is taken in in a different way. And then one comes into living in alignment with those deeper and more realistic perceptions of life. As we come more in living in alignment with those, our life becomes easier because we're not resisting how things are but we're living with how things are, with our hearts open, with compassion and wisdom. So there were many moments, of course, during those times when even with uh, deep and difficult openings that were also profound, that I could say, I can't go on. But the next moment I could say, I did it. I actually did it. And someone reminded me today during that person's interview that this is what happened to that person also, saying, 
how can I go on? But the next moment realizing, but I did go on. And the next hour realizing, I did make it through that time. So it's that moment-to-moment faith that takes an incredible amount of patience. And it's also incredibly transforming. Charles Dubois said, The important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. So in the moment, we're, we're thinking that we're weak and we're inadequate and we can't do it. And the next moment, realizing that it happened. The inadequacy passed because of faith. Because of actually embedded in that faith, a lot of patience, a lot of ability, uh, strength, compassion, courage, wisdom, much more. The Buddha called faith like a seed. A seed is like an intention. And he likened the seed as it goes into the ground um, and it sends down roots. And if we look at that carefully, when a seed or intention goes into the ground, it goes into, in this way, of course, it goes into the ground of our hearts and our minds. But a seed goes into darkness, doesn't it? It goes into a place that can't see and where we need to trust a lot, even though we can't see. And that takes an incredible amount of courage to trust that seed, that intention of faith. It's said that a characteristic of faith is trust. That seed's roots will uh, go down into the ground and take nourishment. And that nourishment will grow a shoot. And that shoot will grow leaves and then blossoms and then fruit. But of course it's hard to go into the places that are unknown. And this is what I refer to as darkness the places that we haven't been before. It takes just that little tiny leap that can give so much to us, that can offer us new possibilities um, for growth, for blossoming, for tasting the fruit of our practice. It's much easier to open to what's beautiful. It's so hard to open to what's difficult, which is part of going into the darkness of the unknown. We open to fear. We open to uh, places where we haven't experienced in a long time and not used to being there, or brand new places. This is from... Wendell Berry, and it speaks volumes to this. To go to the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. It's beautiful to know that place. It's like giving birth to something new in ourselves. That's when we really need to place our hearts upon the moment of experience. That's when we really need to bring a great measure of compassion to that experience. Just a a soft, gentle touching of that place. Not needing to cleave that moment and, you know, 
open it forcefully, but just touch it gently and say, hello, I can be here. In Hawaiian culture, um, when we go to a new place, in nature especially, we just stand there for a moment and we say, we ask permission, may I enter this place? And it's like giving respect to that new place or to another place. And so it's, it's like that when we go to this place of newness, of darkness, which may be accompanied by fear or um, old, hard memories. It's just to touch it lightly, first with our faith. I remember um, once I went to Haleakala, uh, which is a mountain slope that um, I live on, and we hike into the crater sometimes. And one evening, it was a full moon night when we went up, my girlfriends and I. It was our little sitting group. And... um, It was still a full moon night, but there were lots of clouds. And when we got to the top of where we were hiking down from, we couldn't see. It was quite dark. And we had our little flashlights, but not all of us had flashlights because we thought there would be more of a bright moon. And we were going down this trail, which we call the switchback, which um, you kind of go back and forth on as you climb down this deep slope into a part of the crater. And so as I was going down this slope and through the darkness, there were times I couldn't see very well at all. It was really dark. And so I had to kind of go on the place where, um, you know, the, the side was that I could feel. Because on the other side, at some places, it was like a very slippery slope down a lot of many, many feet. And so I was just needing to feel my way through that time, at times, not all the time. But there were times when I had to, it, it might have been a little bit steeper, maybe the step was a little bit um, of, of a big step down. So I would just get on my butt and scoot myself down. And so it's like that sometimes, where in practice we need to feel our way through, more with our hearts, not with our heads, not with our intellect. And that's what faith requires, is just feeling moment to moment our way through. I've heard it said that faith is like a prayer in a dark night, It's like one step at a time prayer. In the last periods of intensive practice for me during times I was in Burma, there have been openings to different layers of um, very deeply unsatisfactory experience, to say the least. Um, So I'm trying to avoid saying suffering so much. Uh, (laughs) But the kind of unsatisfactory experience that has really no cure but to get to the end of suffering somehow. And so many times it would seem like Mara. Mara is um, exemplified as a tempter or the temptress calling out and saying to me, Give up now. That's enough. You've sat enough. You know, you can go home now. And of course, being many miles away and having, you know, a ticket, such and such a ticket, I wouldn't go. But sometimes I would think about doing it. You know, the mind would be tempted to like, okay, I think I will. And the mind would be tempted to think about more pleasant things, another way that Mara um, expresses itself about, um, well, it was very pleasant to think, I'll get up. I'll walk to the office, and I'll ask Dawin um, to call to see if the airlines can take me earlier. You know, so there would be all these ways that I would 
just even I'd still be sitting there, but I'd be tempted to pull away from some deep experience that I really needed to get through. But I would go away from it by thinking about how I could do it. This is one way that I would be seduced um, to uh, run away from fear. Or by thinking, I'll just get up and maybe go have some of that sutumatu, which is like a little honey with some um, kind of butter or oil or ghee. And, you know, you could take it during all times of the day, even past the eating time as medicine to keep you going. So I think, I'll just get up and have a little sutumatu. Oh, that would taste so sweet. But then I would say, oh, this is Mara. This is Mara. I remember one time during those times of sitting when I went to Manindra and I was saying to Manindra, Manindra, this person was sitting beside me and every time this person would get up, this person would flick their, um, their shawl so that it would kind of hit me or put a wind on me and so I would think, I have to get out of the hall. This is when I was sort of sitting like the whole night and he would say, that's Mara, that's Mara. Don't succumb to Mara. You know, so I, I would think of all these ways that would seduce me to get up from my seat. And I'd say, this is Mara, okay. And one thing that I really gained, would gain a lot of strength from is um, remembering the story of the Buddha when I would have thoughts arise that not just a fear, not just that, you know, I'm homesick, which is a frequent one for me, but, but thoughts of that I'm not really good enough to do this. I'm really not worthy enough, which is an old, just an old echo in the mind. But I would sometimes fall into that abyss or that crevice or, and, and actually get identified and believe that until I could say, this is Mara where there was faith enough to stay there. And one of the stories of the Buddha was when he was tempted by Mara, by all kinds of seductions, the pleasant, by fear of this and that, and ways in which he might leave his seat and um, his process into understanding more deeply. And there's one pose, and I believe it's, it's this pose here of the Buddha, in this earth pose, the Bhumi pose, where he put his right hand down and touched the earth. And I don't remember the exact words, but what it is in my own heart that I remember is he asked the earth to bear witness to his right to experience the truth, to understand deeply the way to the to freedom, to liberation. And so this always pierces for me that fear and brings up for me some faith that just as, a human, just as the Buddha was a human being, I too am a human being. And just as a Buddha could do this, I too can do this. I'm worthy of doing this. Who am I to say that I can't? It's just an old echo in the mind, an empty echo. In more contemporary times, I remember Rosa Parks, a simple woman like me. I can really relate to that. And one day she was coming home from her job as a seamstress, and I think many of you know the most of the story, but I'll just go right to the point um, in relationship to faith. On her way home from work on a bus, she refused to get up from her seat out of great faith in herself to make a difference, out of great faith in her goodness, in her worthiness, out of great faith to the possibility that something new could happen 
And so that simple gesture of faith galvanized the civil, civil rights movement. One moment of faith could have far-reaching results. Recently, um, Rosa Parks passed away at the age of 92, and I cried when she passed away because I remembered her during her life and those moments. And you know she was given the highest honors in the White House. Her quiet dignity will always inspire my faith, just as the Buddha, just as St. Francis, just as Mahatma Gandhi, just as Mother Teresa, just as my own colleagues, my own mother. So with that quiet dignity to touch the earth, to bear witness to our right, to open to this moment and the next moment and the next moment, that's what it takes to realize the Four Noble Truths, to have what is called as verified faith, not a blind faith in just um, accepting blindly what is given to us, but investigating for ourselves and realizing for ourselves that there is a way to the end of suffering. So in the text it says that the initial expression of faith is going for refuge. And uh, that's not um, so much talked about in our Western culture. the expression of faith is going for refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, because for some of us it may mean that we have to become a quote-unquote Buddhist. But it doesn't mean that at all. Really it means that we, we perhaps can have faith in something greater than ourselves right now. Something greater than ourselves right now. Something bigger than ourselves right now, that perhaps we can have faith in our potential as a human being, our potential to be this superior person, uh, the Buddha, as uh, uh, the Buddha was and other great beings have been on this earth. So taking refuge in the Buddha can mean, as we have said before, taking refuge in our potential. So something greater than we are right now. Taking refuge in the Dhamma, in the way things are, something greater than we know right now. Taking refuge in the community, because we need help, we need support, we can't do it alone. If it weren't for those in the kitchen, we wouldn't get food. If it weren't for the benefactors who offer food or... um, we wouldn't be able to eat to go on. If it weren't for our teachers who handed down the teachings, we wouldn't be here today to offer you the teachings that what we know. If it weren't for all of you being here, each one of you, the others wouldn't be here because it's hard to practice alone. And so we need the sangha, the community. We need to have faith in each other, taking refuge in each other. So for me, it's taking refuge in something bigger than who I am right now and to who I could become, as Charles Dubois said. So taking refuge as an act of faith, can we do that when we take refuge um, during the times that we do take refuge here in the hall together? Or sometimes I have to take refuge every day. Um, In Burma and with monastics, we bow many times. We bow uh, before a sitting and after a sitting. So you can imagine how many sittings there are in a day. We bow before... um, the sitting when the refuges are given and we bow after the refuges are given and then we bow when the teacher comes in and 
You know, and all those times I've always felt that I have to take refuge. So when I bow, I'm taking refuge all the time in the Buddha and the potential to awaken in the Dhamma, in the truth of how things are, in the Sangha, and giving it up to something greater than myself. I, I, I need support. I need help. So it is said that the nourishment of this seed of faith is through its roots. And those, that nourishment that's taken in through the roots is virtuous activity. And so the next time I'd like to speak about that, which is the second of the sterling uh, qualities of this living embodiment of the superior person, sapurisa, uh, virtuous qualities or moral virtue. So I'd like to end with um, this poem of faith by David White. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this, then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely new, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.